Hello, everybody. How are you doing on this fine spring day? I mean, here in the Midwest, it's raining quite a bit, but I'm seeing new buds on the trees, so I am just waiting, waiting, y'all, for those green leaves to emerge. I'm looking forward to new growth and new scenery. And speaking of new growth, y'all, today we're in for a treat. Because we have a special guest expert in ICBT training and consultation services, as well as a fellow practitioner here in the great Hoosier state of Indiana, Bronwyn Schroyer, LCSW. So let's grow, OCD family community. (laughs) See what I did there? I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. So, happy spring, y'all. How we doing? Let's just do a little check-in here. Have we all adjusted by now our body clocks on track with daylight savings time? And hey, for our replay family out there, newer to our family gatherings, maybe just finding this episode way past springtime, we all know time changes are no joke, right? Whether you're traveling or whether it's daylight savings time, I mean, the lag, the lag is real, right? I think it takes my kids like a good two weeks, I'd say, to adjust. And I guess, to be fair, it's about the same for me. But it's technically spring outside, so there's that. And while all the trees are still bare from the winter season, I am ready for the warmer weather. I am ready to see the bursting sights of green and fresh spring flowers everywhere. I mean, I remember when I lived in L.A. for over a decade, most of the seasons looked very similar. And when I was in grad school particularly, there was a vine at one of the grad school's outdoor gardens. And that vine on that little pergola was basically the only plant I would ever see turn ever so slightly orangish, just a slightly different hue, signifying fall. But otherwise, it looked very similar year-round. And while it did get Southern California cold, and it certainly got real hot come August or September, It's nothing like the temperature fluctuations we get here within a given week, let alone a single season like spring. So, you know, it's spring. So says the calendar. And uh, whichever part of the world you're tuning in from today, family, I hope you're doing well. And I'm just so glad you could join us. So welcome. We're in for a treat because we have a special guest, a new friend to me, Bronwyn Schroyer. And she's joining our family table this week. Now, for those of you outside the States, I said something earlier that might have sounded peculiar. Even for those of you within the States, you're like, right, Hoosiers. Hoosiers? Yep, I called us Hoosiers. Bronwyn and I, I don't know if we uh, identify as Hoosier or not, but what are Hoosiers? Well, if you've checked out the season premiere that just came out of Ted Lasso, which I adore that show, so side note, love it! But if you watched it, you might have caught a real brief 
reference to Hoosiers, the classic underdog tale of a small-town basketball team in rural Indiana that shows us that with hard work and determination, we can shine and maybe win state. Okay. It's a beautiful story. Actually, it is a very touching story, based roughly on a true story. In fact, Indiana, as it turns out, really tops the charts in underdog sports flicks because we also have Rudy, which if you've ever seen Rudy, is a football movie with an inspirational tale, also a true story about a kid named, well, as you would imagine, Rudy, who ended up playing for Notre Dame football. Go Irish. So there's that. Indiana claim to fame, part de. Now, lest we think I'm a super knowledgeable person about sports, I'm, I'm not. I'm really not. But I know what Indiana is known for. And I can follow sports when I choose to. Some folks think of corn when they think of Indiana. But there's more than corn in Indiana. <laughs> wink, wink. If you know, you know. And it's interesting because actually a lot of states here in the U.S. can grow corn. So it's not like a novelty here to Indiana, but yeah, had some cornfields. But you know, I couldn't really tell you why our state was nicknamed the Hoosier State. I do remember I was in like junior high, middle school, went to Chicago on a field trip, which is actually not a short commute by any means to get to Chicago from where I am, especially in terms of field trip time. But a gentleman, I remember as we were meeting at a certain location, came over on the street, was talking to us, cackling at our group because we were Hoosiers from the Hoosier state. <laughs> Hoosiers. And though his intent, I think, was to make fun of the term Hoosiers and Indiana in general, I think we just found it entertaining and joined in the fun, which made it a little less fun for him. But hey, if you can't beat a bully, join him. So anyway, all of the states here, the 50 nifty United States of America, all have cutesy little nicknames or nicknames that I guess they could come by, honestly. And y'all, not all of them are gold, unless, of course, you're from California. Get it? Golden State? Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> but the California gold rush, y'all, people were canning for literal gold. So, I mean, people are not coming to Indiana digging holes panning in streams, looking for gold. And as the character Roy in Ted Lasso's season premiere stated, but why do they call it Hoosiers or something to that effect? And so I thought, yeah, I don't really know where we got that name. I'm curious if they identified Bronwyn and I as Hoosiers. And so I did what any credible person would do. And I asked the interwebs, Hoosiers, where did this name come from? And I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I basically came up with the answer of this is the theory we think is most likely, but it was like a list of theories. And that was on the state's website. So, you know, you always want to be like, am I looking at a credible source? I mean, it wasn't like Wikipedia. It was the Indiana state government website. But hey, we'll go with their most plausible theory. Why not? So the leading theory here is that there was once a contractor named Hoosier. I'm guessing that was his last name. If it was a first name, that's really unfortunate. And Hoosier was working on the Louisville and Portland Canal. So this would be like on the southern border of Indiana and Kentucky. And apparently Hoosier preferred, for whatever reason, to hire his laborers from Indiana. And they were called Hoosier's men. 
So get Hoosiers men over here to work on this or do that task. This here is for Hoosiers men. And eventually, such a formative group of contractors must have been, but eventually all Indianians, which is literally how the state's website characterized it. So we're either Hoosiers or Indianians. So I guess Hoosiers, not so bad. Indianians is like really a mouthful. But eventually all Indianians then were called Hoosiers. So sure, we'll go with that theory. Some of the theories were quirky. Some were pejorative and derisive, I have to say. And so who knows? But it's our nickname. And like any good nickname, there might be some questions on where it truly came up. Bronwyn, you're probably like, why, why are you dragging me into all this Hoosier nonsense? You'll find out. Bronwyn's lived elsewhere as well. And so I don't know. I don't know that she wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I'm a Hoosier. But this is us. We live here now. What can I say? All right. And hey, there's no shame in being here in Indiana. And we, in fact, have a dynamic, small but mighty collaborative crew working hard to fight OCD and bring hope to our fellow Hoosiers. And I always cherish an opportunity to sync up with this crew. And today that I have the pleasure of introducing y'all to Bronwyn, my OCD treatment pal here in Indiana. And Bronwyn is making waves, not only in her treatment practices, both for OCD and trauma, especially as it relates to PTSD, but she's also a co-founder of the OCD Training School, which some of y'all may have previously known as the OCD Lived Experience Collective. And this is really, really special family because the founders were amongst the first early adopters of ICBT here in the United States. So despite 25 odd years of research and training for ICBT as an evidence-based treatment option for OCD along with exposure and response prevention, which is also known as ERP for our new fam, and we've mentioned that this evidence-based practice, ICBT, was utilized more broadly outside of the U.S. until more recently. So Bronwyn, once learning about ICBT, really became one of the first trainers that emerged on the scene stateside here, and she continues to maintain active involvement in helping our practitioner community to build a competency and more hope for OCD sufferers here in the U.S. as well as worldwide. She trains, does individual and group consultations for ICBT. She also is trained and certified in EMDR, which is an evidence-based trauma treatment otherwise known as eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And she works with comorbid presentations of OCD and PTSD. She's also certified in exposure and response prevention. And you'll want to stay tuned, fam, because we are going to be talking about some exciting training opportunities and tools and resources coming up through the OCD training school toward the end of the show. So you'll definitely want to stay tuned for that. But first, for today's main dish, family, we're going to be talking about when trauma entangles with OCD. And this is a really important topic because trauma is an all too common experience, I'm afraid. In the U.S. alone, the National Council for Well-Being cites that 70% of adults, 70%, 7 out of 10 here, in the U.S. have experienced at least one traumatic event within their lifespan. At least one. Some people have experienced multiple traumas. Okay, so how many people is that? It's approximately, get this, approximately 
one quarter of a billion people. This is in the U.S. alone. One quarter of a billion people have experienced at least one trauma. And as therapists, our practitioner community knows, as well as law enforcement or forensic analysts can attest to, not all traumas are reported. So of what data is reported, our number comes in at just about a quarter of a billion people. Billion with a B. Billion in the U.S. alone. It's staggering, y'all. So whether trauma precedes, co-occurs, or happens after OCD is already on the scene, This is a very common, very tricky comorbidity. And some of the symptoms of trauma and OCD, particularly when we reach that range where it's impacting functioning in at least one, if not more, areas of our lives, some of these symptoms really can overlap, but they're fueled from these two different sources. And sometimes it's tricky to go, oh, is it this source that's fueling it or that source or both? Or neither. And while therapy can incorporate both, addressing both, treating both OCD and trauma, the resulting entanglement can be difficult to navigate for the sufferer, for loved ones that may even share that trauma or simply don't know what to do, how to help. So Bronwyn is going to graciously and compassionately walk with us this road to understanding the delicate but hope-filled balance available for folks that have experienced trauma and OCD. We will also discuss how trauma doesn't always reach that clinical level, and that goes for OCD too, but it can certainly trip folks up. For many of you listening now, OCD family community, even the experience of OCD has been traumatizing. We see you. We hear you. We get it. So my hope for y'all is that we can all bloom and grow because it is spring after all, right? Into a better understanding of how trauma and OCD entangle. What treatment can look like? Considerations to note. And hope, family. Hope that is available. Also, I just want to give a trigger warning as we will be talking about different types of trauma in general. For the purpose of this talk, we aren't zooming into the weeds. But I wanted to give you all informed consent because trauma is very sensitive and a very raw topic for many. So please, join us if you're able, but please use your discretion as we continue. And without further ado, please join me as we welcome Bronwyn Schroyer, LCSW, to our family gathering. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. I am so excited today because I get to bring on a new friend to me. I feel, I feel like we're friends, Bronwyn, at this point. I do too. Yes, but this is Bronwyn Schroyer. She is a fellow Indiana therapist. There's not a ton of us, so I'm just super excited. <laughs> I'm like, you're from Indiana? You understand OCD? And boy, does she. I mean, she is incredible. She is a trainer and a consultant. For ICBT, which is inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy. And how long have you been working with the OCD population, Bronwyn? Well, I actually started my career as a school social worker. Uh And so I was a school social worker for a long time. But working with OCD, I actually never thought I would want to. And so because I have a lived history of OCD personally. Mm -hmm. And so I only started working with actual OCD clients about three years ago, although I saw it in the school setting all the time. Yeah. 
And something, if you would be willing to share, knowing that you had lived experience going into that is kind of a rare thing because as we're learning, it takes so long to understand that that's actually what we're dealing with. So Mm -hmm. prior to becoming this social worker, were you aware at that time that what you were living was this experience of OCD? Or when did you find out about that within your journey? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with OCD at 15. Mm-hmm. So I've had a 30-year version like journey with yeah. that now. And that actually came out of kind of what we're going to talk about today. It came out of a traumatic experience I had. And my OCD and that experience all happened at the same time. Okay. So. And so you were able to, did you start with therapy in terms of? Yes. Okay. And the person that was treating you understood both trauma and OCD. She's like, no, y'all. She's like, come on now. That's why you didn't want to go into it until recently. Because you're like, that was not my treatment. (laughs) Well, as we're going to talk about today, you know, people with comorbid PTSD and OCD, it's a difficult combination to treat. And people with this combination often have more severe OCD symptoms. So OCD was at the forefront at that time. For me, and I did go to therapy, but my therapist really did not know how to treat OCD. And I did medication management for a long time, and I was not a med responder either. And then luckily for me, when I went to college, I ended up walking down. I was a psych and sociology major. I was walking down the psych hallway, and there was a study for OCD with exposure and response prevention. So I enrolled. And that did give me a level of getting back into my world, but I was always plagued with obsessive doubts still. And so my quality of life improved a little bit, but not to the place where I was able to like withstand doing rituals or obsessive doubts were still popping in all day long, every day. Yeah. And I think so many people with lived experience can relate to that, especially before finding a treatment that works. And something that you're mentioning and we've talked about here on the podcast is exposure and response prevention, otherwise known as ERP, has been in the United States a gold standard for a long time, has about 50 years of research, as we will talk a little bit later in the show, too, after we kind of get a nice intro to trauma here. Also, you have been very, very involved in inference-based CBT, ICBT, and I, I think we'll hear a shift again where we got a stair step up in terms of functionality with ERP, what the difference was like when you were able to really lean into and understand your OCD from an ICBT perspective. So I'm excited to get to all of that, but very first, I would like for us to look at this idea of trauma. Now, when people think of trauma, it can really vary in terms of how that presents. Some people are concerned from a very young age of if my baby cries and I don't soothe them, that's going to be traumatic for them. So trauma can can have that sort of presentation for folks. It can also be being subject to something that you did not consent to that brought harm psychologically, emotionally, physically to you. It certainly can be just even the idea of that that can be so dismantling and disruptive to someone's functioning that it can manifest in those different ways. So in terms of thinking about trauma and not even necessarily disordered trauma like a PTSD diagnosis, but trauma, 
Can you help the OCD family community have a better understanding of really how you would define it and really how that affects you and really even physiological yeah. ways with fight, flight, freeze, all of that? Yeah. So there is a difference between, you mentioned PTSD and trauma, right? So PTSD is a certain diagnosis, right, from the DSM-5, and it does include criteria that means that the trauma has to be life-threatening or sexual violence in some way. And those of us that are out in the clinical world do know that sometimes people come in and they have a trauma, an event that's happened to them, right, that won't necessarily meet PTSD criteria. So those are two separate things, but a trauma can lead to a diagnosis of PTSD. The trauma itself is going to be some event that's going to shake up your worldview, make it feel unsafe, unjust, unpredictable. It's going to make you feel helpless. It's going to have some physiological parts to that where your emotions may be heightened and your sleep may get disturbed some. And anything that's going to start to make it so that your functioning is off within your world. So depending on what's going on in your life and who you are, one event that happens to one person may be traumatic and to another person it may not. One thing that happened to me that I was watching a large group of people experience with me was I lived in the D.C. area during the D.C. sniper shootings. And that affected me greatly. I already had a history of trauma at that point. But for me, that was a very traumatic event. Someone was murdered a mile from my office. I felt very unsafe. But I had coworkers that were going around their day and that wasn't really affecting them that much. But to me, that became a traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And to them, it was just an experience that wasn't fantastic, but it didn't affect them in that same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that, that point. And I can only imagine how scary that was. So thank you for sharing about it. I imagine it still feels tender at times when you talk about it. And so that's a great example of how something can affect a whole range of people, a whole, a whole city, a whole community. But some may feel more traumatized by that, and that might heighten their sense or experience of fear in their everyday reality versus somebody else who certainly didn't enjoy the experience, but was able to process it and move through it in a different way. And it's not to say one is right and one is wrong. It is what it is. We're people and we're going to experience and feel things in different ways. That's part of the beauty of us. And it can be part of the challenge, too, then when we're looking at things like treatment, because often treatment, especially when we're looking at evidence-based treatment, it's important to know what the boundaries or parameters are for the treatment. But at the same time, it can feel like a shape sorter of, if I don't have this exact set of things, I'm not going to be able to do the thing which isn't necessarily true, but it can feel that way. And so there's, there's a lot around that in terms of people experiencing trauma in different ways. You mentioned the physiological, and I think when we think about, a lot of people when they think about OCD, they think about it as an anxiety disorder. Within ICBT, it's a doubting disorder. The anxiety comes later. But because many people don't know they're dealing with OCD yet, they're still dealing with the anxiety until they have a little more insight about what's going on in that process, right? And so similarly within anxiety or the way that any given person tolerates distress, we can also have 
this physiological piece to it that often speaks louder than even the thoughts where we go, oh, but no, like, no, this is seriously happening because I can feel the panic. I can feel the distress. I can feel the fear. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing that. And so certainly within trauma and OCD now, we can see how some of those physiological cues might really overlap. And that can get really confusing then if you've experienced trauma and you may be experiencing some symptoms of OCD. So can we talk a little bit about what that's like when both are showing up to the party and how to make sense of that? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really good question. So symptoms for OCD and PTSD can look very similar. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of avoidance in both, right? So there's a lot of avoiding, but one thing we know about when we're avoiding with PTSD, we're avoiding re-experiencing that past trauma, right? We're, we're trying to keep away from having to re-experience that. Whereas in OCD, we're trying to avoid usually a future-focused situation. Within an ICBT lens, we're looking at an imagined possibility, right? A situation that maybe I could be capable of stabbing my dog and I want to avoid that. So I'm going to do some ritualistic behavior that my OCD says is going to unwind that possibility for me. Mm -hmm. So there's more of a past focus with PTSD and more of a present or future focused with OCD. Right, right. Yeah, and that is, that's a really good distinction because, yeah, you can have certain things like nightmares, flashbacks. You can have some generalization if you experience, for example, this this uh, sniper in D.C., then if you hear a car backfire, you might immediately jolt right. because you're going to recall and it's going to, in the moment, you're not like, is that really a good shot? Could it be? Might it not be? Like, you're just going to react, right? And so in looking at trauma, it's really about that re-experience of the past that would be really scary and trying to cope with that. And then in the current present tense and the future beyond what if I do this, then that could happen. That is the OCD playbook in terms of how symptoms are showing up. Right. If and when both are showing up, they can look very similar. And as we've discussed, OCD is emerging a bit more here on our understanding of it. And there's been, there are a couple different really great modalities we have for treating OCD. Trump's been on the scene a bit longer, but is still misunderstood quite a bit, I feel. And so I wonder, first of all, if we can talk about what is treatment for trauma and usually what is recommended in terms of how to cope with having experienced something as traumatic. Yeah, it is lovely that we have the research that we do have on trauma treatments. So we have things like prolonged exposure, which is going to mimic a little bit like ERP for OCD. So prolonged exposure is going to do a similar thing for trauma. We have cognitive processing therapy, which is going to be a little bit more of a cognitive look at how to treat trauma. Then there are things like eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, otherwise known as EMDR, which is also a, an evidence-based trauma treatment. So we do have different modalities that all show high levels of effectiveness when we're working with trauma. Yeah. Okay. And so coming in and being able to do some of that exposure, and I'm, you know, I've had plenty of clients that have dealt with some traumas prior to the OCD, plenty mm -hmm. of clients that have experienced OCD 
and its grip on their loved one or as the sufferer as very traumatic itself. And I think that's a common thing that I hear, but I'm always very quick to distinguish, even if exposures are included within trauma care, it's not a matter of response prevention. Like, yeah, maybe this will happen. It's a matter of you being able to process the story of what happened to you and to go there and be able to get through those pieces bit by bit. It requires a bit of going there. And so that yes. is really hard, but that is, that's probably oversimplifying it, but somewhat the extent of exposure, we're not going to be doing provocative things, probably going to preload ourselves with lots of beautiful coping skills versus in OCD, where we're like those coping mechanisms we come up with often can become ritualistic and compulsive in nature. They can function that way, which the function is a really important piece to cue into. But can we talk a little bit about what that looks like then in trying to understand is what I'm experiencing, because sometimes the insight over is this past, present, or future can be difficult when you're in the midst of that distress. Right. Uh, and so distinguishing, like, when would I start to suspect OCD more in this experience that I'm having versus understanding it just as an experience of trauma? Sure. So let's do an example. Let's say we have a client who lived through a robbery. And so at night, they want to lock the door, right? And so that, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. Potentially locking that door to neutralize a threat from being re-experienced. Right. In that one, it looks like PTSD. We also have the same client who's been robbed, but also has PTSD and OCD. The behavior may start as I'm locking to neutralize this threat. But then it's going to become excessive over time. So then we're locking the doors multiple times. We don't believe what our senses are saying, that they are locked, that the threat is neutralized. We're going to start coming up with a lot of imagined possibilities that make us want to lock the door for two hours. Or now we're also doing lots of other rituals and adding in things to keep this imagined possibility from happening. So we're going to layer things in. So if it's a future-focused, imagined possibility that's not necessarily related to that robbery, then, and, and it's excessive, then we're potentially looking at some OCD. Yeah, and that's a really good point. So when it kind of grows in excess in terms of what would, even if you haven't gone through a robbery, it's not that it's a bad thing to lock your door at night. Right. But when you're starting to really feel that urgency to make sure that you did it right, even though You've locked the door probably thousands of times over the course of your life at that point and done it like an all-star. And in fact, a robbery may not even require a locked or unlocked door, right? But the reality of going, okay, I locked it. And even though I know what that feels like, I know what it looks like. I know what it sounds like when that lock locks. What if I didn't actually lock it and now I'm not safe? And so that is really the OCD trope, right? Because- right. Now, and honestly, what we see in ERP, really, where that sequence continues into, oh, now that has a lot of meaning that I didn't actually lock it. And now I'm freaking out and I have to do some extra work here to make sure that it is really locked. And yet still, you're going to walk away going, but did I lock it? Did I? So it, it's that torture that can start to be imprisoning. 
there's certainly folks out there that, and I know I've heard this in my office as I am going to hazard a guess that you have as well, <laughs> when they come in with different experiences of OCD, a lot of times people have been living it for a good chunk of time, not realizing it. Even kiddos where we're like, oh, things got to a really hard point right now. So we're reacting by getting into treatment. But once we know it's OCD, we can look back and be like, oh, that's been hanging around for a while. But a lot of people will share about their experience of OCD as being traumatic. And so can we talk a little bit about the experience of OCD and the impact that it can have on us, which doesn't necessarily lead, again, to PTSD per se, but it definitely can be a traumatizing experience? Sure. When you have OCD and you are imagining these scenarios where you're potentially going to harm someone or accidentally cause harm to someone, that is a terrifying prospect. And living within those like mental imagining, like those movies feels like a very immersive experience. Let's say that we have somebody who's coming up to a decision, like they have to do something around their kids. Maybe it's just a trip and we're taking a trip and suddenly it's just we're choosing plane flights, right? Like we're just going to choose a flight to book it. And then an obsessional doubt comes in and says, well, if you choose this flight, your kids may die. Or if you choose this flight, your kids may die. And trying to go through that and just give your kids a good experience on a vacation becomes this all-encompassing horror movie for yourself all of a sudden, right? Right. And so when you go constantly living in that state where you feel like everything around you is on your shoulders, that's an insane amount of pressure. Pressure, yes. And and activation with your nervous system constantly. And so that is a really heavy quality of life issue. And when you are visualizing these terrible scenes playing out in front of you, you are witnessing these terrible scenes, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're witnessing this thing that relies completely on you to choose how you're going to keep the situation safe for everybody that you love. Yeah. And, and yeah, we just think of like the stress hormone of cortisol, like you're just bathing in it at that point, which happens a lot within trauma too, where, like you said, you're getting activated and how could that not impact your experience? Not just on an emotional level, but on a physiological level, on a neurological level. And so I think that's a really good point in terms of how those different experiences that our loved ones, or if we're the sufferer, then we have that lived experience. But certainly for you, family members out there, for spouses out there going, okay, well, I, I definitely can see where they're getting activated. And I can see how this is flooding for them. And even for the support family, watching your loved one go through hell, literally, yeah. Yeah. and feeling powerless to change it. Like feeling so stuck that is, I'm a mom and certainly I would do anything for my kiddos. And if I feel like I can't do this thing for them and they are so afraid and they are so troubled by it, boy, it makes me feel terrible. It makes me feel like even if it's not my quote unquote fault because I want to be able to help them and so many in our support community are feeling that too. And so Really, there can be this vicarious trauma of 
I may not be experiencing the urgency and the flooding of the this is life or death situation the same way the OCD supper is, but I feel completely at a loss for changing this for my child and that is breaking me. And that can be traumatic as well. Yeah, that level of helplessness watching a loved one go through OCD is terrible. And we have to be honest that being around somebody who is in the middle of an obsessional doubt sequence and is stuck in the bubble of OCD, it is not a pleasant experience. Your very sweet and kind and loving loved one can suddenly become angry, irrational, cruel. It can, it can become something that they don't want. That's not who they are, but they're facing this incredibly scary scene right in front of them in that moment. So they're acting out of, you know, panic almost, right? Like yeah. it's a scary spot to be in. So you're seeing somebody who you love in a, in, a, in a state where they really wouldn't be without their OCD. Yeah. And panic is contagious. It really is. So you think about situations where people can get stampeded over. Oh, my gosh, was that a gunshot? Is this a crisis? People start running in every direction. People sometimes get killed in trampling because right. that fear immediately. And if they're freaking out, I should freak out. It can be really contagious. And even when it's not, even when you're like, I know that they're going to get to that panic level and I don't have to ride that roller coaster with them, it still can be hard standing on the platform, tapping your foot, going, This is never going to end. This is never going to end. And I don't know how long, like, I can sanely handle this because this is never going to end. That's what it feels like in that moment. It does feel like that. Yeah. It feels like that in that moment. And it also feels like that. If you aren't getting the right treatment for you, if you feel like that and your the journey of your loved one is going on forever and ever, feels like this is going to be what your life is going to be like for a long time. And yeah. that's why treatment options are so important. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So that really takes us into a nice segue for talking about treatment as well as other resources that people can lean into especially if you are that support person of getting the time out for yourself and going, okay, <laughs> I'm going to go over here and breathe. I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to get my support people. <laughs> yeah. I realize that I don't have to have this all in me. But yes, treatment is so super important. And so in talking about earlier, we said if we're just dealing with trauma, here are some really important evidence-based practices, trauma-focused CBT and amongst others, EMDR, you said. Mm -hmm. And then also... If we have OCD, emphasizing and heightening the flavor of trauma experience, and it won't always revolve around that trauma. It often, OCD can have inferential confusion over a great myriad of different areas. It doesn't just right. show up there where the trauma is. But I would love to talk a, a bit more about, yeah, the right treatment options and having options and what does that next step look like then? When you're recognizing I am having either I had a previous trauma that is making this harder or maybe had that and this OCD is traumatizing or maybe it's just the OCD like that's just one small, <laughs> one small piece of the puzzle that's impacting it. But let's talk about treatment options in terms of how we can help our loved ones in accessing the right kind of care and thinking about that together. Yeah, so the research isn't there yet on like a straight path forward, right? We don't know exactly the best way to treat comorbid PTSD and OCD cases. Thankfully, we have people like Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti from Baylor who is working on that. 
and is really making some very wonderful research happen out in the world. So big, big thank you to her. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is we have good treatments for PTSD and we have good treatments for OCD. And what we need are for clinicians to learn how to figure out the right treatment at the right time for this client that's in front of them. Mm-hmm. So there's not going to be somebody who's going to be able to say in the world, you should do prolonged exposure and you should do ICBT as a combo. There's, we don't have that yet. But we do know that we can treat both PTSD and we can treat OCD. We just have to make sure we're really looking at the symptoms and talking with our clients about this symptom here is probably PTSD related or trauma related. And this symptom over here is going to be related to your OCD. We know that we can't cure OCD by treating trauma. We have to do a two-pronged approach in these situations where we're going to try to clear out that trauma and we're also going to address the OCD. Do you have typically an order in which you, when you're working with clients, look at that and say, here's where we'll address trauma first and then go on to OCD? Is it I'll address OCD and then when it gets kicked into trauma mode, we'll stop? the OCD treatment and pivot towards that trauma treatment and then pivot back? What does that look like for you? Yeah, it's really client specific. So if someone's coming in to see me and um, let's say the PTSD or trauma symptoms are really, really high, we're going to look at that and I may try to do a trauma treatment plan first and then come back and pivot to the OCD. If we do know that these two things affect each other. You treat one, the other one's symptoms may go up. You treat the other, the other one's symptoms may go up. So it is really important that clinicians are trained to look for trauma. I, I screen all of my clients that are coming in to see me for trauma because we know that about 25% of people with OCD are also going to have PTSD. So it's, it's a high number and yeah. we have to be aware of that as clinicians. So. My big public service announcement to clinicians is if you don't, if you're an OCD specialist and you don't have a trauma modality, learn one. And if you're a trauma specialist listening and you don't have an OCD modality, learn one. We need to have both things in order to do justice to these clients. So when I'm doing ICBT with a client for OCD, Mm -hmm. that actually allows me to find trauma pretty easily. Because the way the treatment goes, we're going to look back at that reasoning for why they are believing the things that they're believing. And trauma kind of comes up in those as a personal experience reason. Sure. A trauma informs the thought process in a lot of those situations and a lot of overlapping situations. So, yeah, you're going to be unearthing some of those things as you come up. I really like what you are promoting here, and I, I couldn't agree more. It's really, really important to understand trauma. And if you're not somebody that has worked with trauma, either building some understanding and doing some training around that that can complement the work that you're already doing or having another therapist that you trust that can do trauma work and you can do OCD work and and not only maybe referring the client for the trauma pieces, I feel like that gets really messy. Most people don't want to tell two different therapists the same thing. But maybe even working together, you guys collaborating and going, let me inform you where OCD might be showing up to your PTSD diagnosis or even experience of trauma that is more of an acute stress 
event or an adjustment disorder, as, as some therapists enjoy to diagnose with adjustment disorders. Which for anybody out there, it just means you've had something happen where you're like, ugh, and you're having an adjustment to it. Often, there's so much more than the adjustment, but that's a whole nother subject. When you were saying to find a modality that can treat trauma, it just made me think of this. So we've talked about this a little bit on the show. We've had a couple guests with lived experience certainly open up about trying EMDR. EMDR mm-hmm. is, like you said, an evidence-based practice for trauma. Mm-hmm. When it comes to OCD, there is certainly a community of EMDR therapists that feel confident that they could treat OCD with EMDR as well. And they're not necessarily OCD therapists, so they don't necessarily have training at all in either ERP or ICBT. And so I think this has been a little bit of a controversial thing. A lot of people that have done EMDR without their EMDR therapist knowing more about OCD have found it to be not helpful in terms of reducing OCD symptoms. And certainly similar to psychotherapy, they feel like, oh, I just went and did all these things that just have made my OCD more complex. But it's not always a wrong choice insofar as you can understand the OCD piece as well and the treatment modalities for that. So can you speak a little bit more to that? Because you are also a specialist in EMDR, right? And it would be, I would just really value, as I'm sure the whole family here would, in terms of understanding that distinction better. Sure. So EMDR, yeah, I'm a certified EMDR therapist and a consultant in training with EMDR. So I do believe in it as a trauma modality for sure. When it comes to OCD, we have very little research backing to say the EMDR can be an evidence-based treatment for OCD. There's a few series, case series and case studies. And for those listening, that usually means there's a very small number of participants in those studies that are doing the work with with researchers. Mm -hmm. So we have that. We we don't have huge like randomized control trials where we're looking at EMDR in comparison to other things. There is one RCT that looked at um, one protocol versus ERP and found that to be comparable. However, even the authors of that study go on to say that maybe the mechanism of change, the thing that's working within EMDR for OCD is what we would be having in exposure and response prevention, maybe another use of imaginal exposure that's treating the OCD. But overall, we don't have the research backing for EMDR yet with OCD. Where it could come into play is with this kind of presentation that can be used to help treat some of the traumas that are happening like in the past from before OCD or that are happening currently with OCD. So EMDR can come in and help there tremendously. But as a whole, can we say that it's a jump right to it kind of modality for OCD? No, not yet. There's not enough research to support it. We need a lot more, a lot more studies. If someone has gone through ERP medication and ICDT and they're coming to see me, am I going to say I don't have anything left? No. I'm going to say, okay, well, let's see what we can do. Maybe we should try EMDR next if you're not responding to these other treatments. Because a client not responding to a treatment is not a treatment failure in my mind. It just means that that wasn't the right modality for them. But EMDR is never going to be the thing I choose first, always going to be the thing I choose after 
the most effective treatments. So it's supplemental. So, I mean, I, I will do the PCL5 when I feel that there's substantial. So I follow up with that if, if I just am taking history taking and I'm asking for events that have been in, right. really in terms of the treatment and for OCD. And really, so what you're talking about in the obsessional thought sequence is if your trigger, let's take the robbery example. If the trigger is it's nighttime and you're getting ready to go to bed, okay, and you go and you lock the door, right? And the problem comes in maybe after you lock the door and you go, what if I get attacked? What if I get robbed? What if I'm not safe? And you get into that space. Well, what we want to target, if we're looking at it from an ICBT perspective, if I'm tracking all I'm learning correctly, is what we want to target is where we left the reality of I'm in the room alone, or maybe my family's here and I'm just getting ready for bed. Maybe there's a hum in the microwave that is a little annoying, but there's nothing, there's no assailant, there's no actual threat other than the annoying microwave being annoying <laughs> in this moment. But because of that trauma history, now my sensitivity to this robbery happened at night and somebody broke in and this could happen, right, starts to flood in. So if we were using EMDR and that trauma, that robbery was just still so fresh, plus the OCD symptomology, then we could really use and lean into EMDR to help with all of the pieces that are forming the possible imagined possibilities, I guess, would be the way of saying it. And it's not that that eliminates or makes the event never have happened. Boy, wouldn't that be nice, but it doesn't work that way. I mean, it doesn't mean if you do some EMDR on it, it should never trip you up again. It doesn't mean that either. Trauma is trauma, and you're, we hold our scars forever, right? But in the same way, we can address dealing with what is making the absorbing nature of that obsessional thought so real because it has happened before. And now I'm really scared that it could ever happen again. Right. Right. So, right. so we use EMDR maybe there only if we can't really get into the obsessional sequence. Sometimes we can get into that obsessional sequence and that resolves some of the fear around that trauma because part of what was happening was this continued distress because you're staying in that fight, flight, or freeze mode for so long when you're going through all of those different rituals and all of those different compulsions to try and deal with the meaning because you have had traumatic experiences around that in the past. So certainly EMDR could be used, but and let, you just got to take it on a case-by-case -case basis like you're saying and see where that's at. Usually I know when I'm treatment planning with people, whether it's ERP or ICBT, and I'm really new to ICBT, so it's been mainly ERP to this point, I've been very, very clear. Here is what I want to do for this, for OCD. And I base that on a Y-box or a Cybox, which is our Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale. For ICBT, it's you look at the Inferential Confusion Questionnaire. And I still Y-box people just to Me too. get some baseline data. You were mentioning having a good trauma assessment. Do you have some recommendations for clinicians out there or even clients and families if they wanted to ask for it? Meaningful to them or that are still causing present day distress. 
if those come up in that kind of history taking, that's when I'll give a PCL5 and see what the symptomology looks like now. So part of it is just the clinical interview. You're getting that Mm -hmm. trauma history. And you know what? I, especially as young therapists, I think we all were young therapists at one point that that are therapists now. But you and I, we've been young therapists before. And a lot of things around trauma, people are afraid to say it sometimes, even the clinician. Right. You know, like, has somebody, have you ever experienced sexual abuse or physical abuse, neglect, molestation, any of those things? Yeah, that's really uncomfortable to ask. And what happens sometimes inadvertently, and this is anecdotal in my observation, I'm sure there is research out there, but what happens is people get the messaging that, yeah, I shouldn't necessarily talk about it. That's too much. That's too much for them. It's too much for me, or I should have dealt with it. Or maybe if I don't talk about it, it didn't happen. There are a lot of different ways people wrap their mind around that. And so sometimes it's just us as the clinician going, Have you experienced something like this? Tell me more about that. It gives permission Mm -hmm. for somebody to go, okay, I can talk about this. At the same time, permission and consent is very, very important, especially it's always important no matter what. But you didn't consent to that trauma. You experienced that trauma and you were hit like you were hit by a bus with this trauma. And so it's really important, too, that we're not like working so hard to be like, are you sure you didn't have a trauma? Tell me more and I'm going to dig deeper. It has to come out in that person's time. But if you can build trust with your client and you can open the door and they still don't tell you about it in that moment, what it does is it plants the seed that I can be a safe person that I can talk about this if and when I'm ready. And maybe, yeah. and maybe it'll come up and maybe it won't. Sometimes it'll be like, no, I actually think I've resolved some of that. And maybe it so, okay, that's okay. You don't have to talk about it. And if a client's like, yeah, I don't want to, if part of our treatment is going to be, I'm doing OCG over here and I'm doing a trauma narrative over here, and we're going to work our way up to being able to get through that trauma narrative and develop a way to process this, this scary thing that happened to you. They might be like, no, thanks. I would rather not. I do so much great work about trying to avoid that. So like to never even address that again or any words that rhyme with it. But again, if we, so it's important that we listen to the client and we lean into that and we're not forcing something beyond where they're ready, but we got to be willing to ask. We got to be willing to show that it's okay to talk about those things. And I think it can feel uncomfortable. So yeah, it's it's hard to talk about those things. The person suffering with that absolutely would agree. And so, and so being able to do that is, is certainly very, very important. So when we're looking, though, and from what I know of EMDR, and like you were saying a little bit ago, you were saying, if we're looking at kind of the imaginal pieces, right, that can be so gripping within trauma work. And then we look at something like a modality like ICBT, where the non-relevant, like the imaginal possibilities is really where we're leaving our relevant Five senses, common sense reality, and we can go into this other space. So where we might have more imaginal scripts, say, an ERP, sitting there and wondering some of those imaginal possibilities in ICBT isn't necessarily the point. We might get to a point of practicing, or we certainly probably will get to a point of practicing alternative stories, but it has a very, very different function than coming up with more irrelevant stories. 
Am I understanding that correctly from my read on ICBT? Yeah, alternative stories are more of noticing the real story in front of you or noticing what the reality is without OCD. It's not convincing ourselves of another story, but it's just rooting back into reality and and seeing the real story that that truly exists when we stay within our senses. Yeah, so if you're doing ICBT around trauma and then you get tripped up with the imaginal story, being able to tell where this isn't just another irrelevant thing, this is really the trauma and we obviously are going to need to zoom in and focus on this trauma piece to be able to differentiate obsessional doubt from reality versus thinking, okay, we're going to get into all this imaginal scripting, which can be like a real blurred line with imaginal scripting and even with an ERP. I mean, that's why I think it's so important if you're doing both trauma work that has some exposure element to it and ERP that you're real clear. This is not about response prevention when we come to that. This is processing the trauma. The response prevention can feel re-traumatizing if applied in a trauma issue. And so I think that gets that gets muddy. That gets complicated. And how do we help the OCD sufferer, let alone the family members surrounding them, going, okay, yeah, I I'm not okay with leaning into some of these things that are just going to re-traumatize them. And yeah, you shouldn't be okay with that. That's we don't right. the goal is not to re-traumatize or increase experience of trauma. But because it is such a fuzzy line that sometimes clinicians don't even understand, what are your thoughts on that in terms of helping people understand the difference? Well, this has been a, an unexpected benefit of ICBT for me as a trauma therapist is that, you know, when, when you're doing ICBT and you are getting to the content of the person's, like, why they believe what they believe, when someone says to you, well, this bad thing happened to me. You can't tell me that bad things don't happen. I've lived that. Yeah. Imagine saying to your client, well, that doesn't matter. We're not going to worry about that piece, right? And within ICBT, we say, okay, yeah, I get how that's becoming part of this obsessional story too, right? That real thing that happened is also wrapping into your OCD as evidence for why you need to worry about this thing. But is it actually your OCD in that moment or is it a trauma response, right? And that's when I'm going to sit back and say, wait, we are not going to gaslight this client into saying that this bad thing that happened to you that's still actively causing you distress doesn't matter. We're going to pause there and we're going to go and we're going to work on that piece because that's important. And if we don't validate that for them, that's a big like ethical quandary for me as a therapist. But when someone says to you, I know bad things could happen, that's true. And we need to deal with that in the trauma world. When it comes back to the OCD world, though, Yes, that bad thing happening doesn't mean it's happening right now, though. So we need to clear that up so it isn't coming into the scenario as strongly. So somebody can be able to see, okay, yes, that bad thing did happen. But right now, my evidence in front of me is showing that there's no reason to believe that that's happening present day or that's going to happen in the future. I'm doing my crossover point from reality into the imagination, and I don't need to go into my imagination. All the evidence I need is right here in front of me. But if you still have an active trauma, you better believe that's going to come up and say, hey, this bad thing happened and we're still struggling with it. Yeah. And you said earlier that for those that have OCD, 25% of them also have trauma, right? 
25% have PTSD. PTSD. Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. I wonder how many people of PTSD have OCD. Do you know that stat that way? Even higher. I was going to say. Um, yeah. yeah, it's even higher. I think somewhere between 30 to 40 percent. Yeah, because I'm thinking about just in trauma treatment alone, some of the common things that might come up for people, like if you were attacked by a man, maybe you're going to start generalizing some fear around men, especially if you're on your own or in a situation where you feel like you might feel trapped or whatnot. Even if this man, maybe it's the male man, maybe it's the nicest man in the world. We can generalize some of these things. You think about some of these traits that happen within trauma like PTSD, where we're not at this disordered level of functioning because it so impacts our ability to engage with the world. I mean, some of that generalizing, and then again, it's important to not lose sight of the focus of where we're coming from here. But some of that generalizing can feel a lot like just obsessional doubting. And so I would imagine, I'm not going to say it, it never exists in its own silo, but at the same time, we can start to see how different attributes of PTSD could be OCD just gaining some strength and really growing there. And again, it doesn't mean if you have trauma that you're definitely going to have OCD and people are going to present with different struggles within PTSD diagnoses as well. But you could see how the overlap and if your brain is now, if you're dealing with a number of different vulnerable self themes, you can see how this inferential confusion could really, really start to grow around these very, very heightened areas of fear and, and panic and distress. And so I would, I would imagine that that number could be a lot higher. And I also would imagine even if we had a statistic that we could be like, oh, yes, such and such says it's this. It's probably not the right number because we need to understand. We'd have to have people really understand OCD doing that research right there, which you said Dr. Pinciotti is working on. But there's certainly great research out there by trauma people as well that have dedicated their lives to furthering this work. And we're thankful and grateful for it. But again, that just it doesn't mean they necessarily understand OCD. So some of that might be missed in the statistics as well. And you're looking at treating OCD, right? Like what we want to do is have our clients be able to trust their reality again, right? And in PTSD, we're doing the same thing. We want them to trust their reality again, that they are safe in the world that they're in right now and they've healed those wounds. But when we're working with an OCD and we're talking about teaching them between reasonable doubt and obsessive doubt, then if in a reasonable doubt situation, you know, we're looking for direct evidence. And if trauma is still coming into play and saying, look, but these bad things are there, then we do have to be able to address that. Yeah. Another thing that I thought about that comes up sometimes. So maybe a client has been hospitalized because of the intensity of their OCD. Mm. And through that process, that can be a very traumatizing experience for the family at large as well, or the spouse or the community, the children, whoever is impacted by that. And then sometimes as that person goes forward in their OCD treatment, not only do they want their loved one to have the best possible life they can and have freedom from the hold OCD has had on their life, but also there's a lot of trauma that can develop for spouses, caregivers, 
that say, oh my gosh, what if this happens again? And we end up in another really traumatizing hospitalization. Right. Or somebody is dealing with an obsessional doubt or an ERP, as they would call an intrusive thought. And I'm not reassuring them in that moment. And then somebody overhears and that the calls get made because this person is having dangerous thoughts and you're allowing it to happen. There's a lot of fear built in and a lot of vested need, need for that family member or spouse to see their OCD sufferer getting better because they're afraid of the trauma reoccurring for themselves as well. As much as they don't want it for the person, they certainly, that's like number one, but also pretty high up there was the experience we had that was all so traumatizing. So in terms of that, can we talk about that piece? Because I have a lot of compassion for family members that are experiencing that and any ideas that we could have to help them in processing through the vicarious pieces that they experience around OCD and trauma. Yeah, you know, family members in general who are living with a loved one with OCD, it's it's good to have your own supports outside, right? Whether that's therapy or a support group of loved ones with a loved one that has OCD. I think that it's very, very important that we have support and an understanding. The, the number one thing that people want is to be understood. And so when you can surround yourself with people in support groups that do know what it's like to have a loved one with OCD, that's a really healing aspect moving forward. Yeah. In their own therapy, they go to see a therapist that does understand these types of interactions and wounds that are getting taken in by caring for somebody who is dealing with a very difficult condition that can also be incredibly beneficial. And I would urge family members to do their own therapy if they can. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. It's been one of the issues on my heart and even creating this podcast is to provide support and resources. It certainly is not therapy. I emphasize that at the top of the show. It never hurts to emphasize again, this is not therapy. But we are thinking collaboratively, brainstorming some ideas and resources. And what we know is, whether it's a support group, doing your own therapy, even listening to podcasts like these, tuning into YouTube, going and learning more about ICBT, all of these things are different external resources that increase our our bandwidth to deal and cope with what life is throwing us. And so having some of these external resources, this is part of what was so challenging about the height of the pandemic was we had a lot less access to these different resources, but also a silver lining. There's a lot more happening, well, within the telehealth world, let alone just virtual support groups and things that you used to have to go to a brick and mortar building and walk in and say, hi, my name is Nicole and I love somebody with OCD or whatever it is, right? And now we can join these virtual groups and we can talk with other people. We can go to a conference like IOCDF or ADAA and talk with other people that have lived experience. And that's really, really important. It's really, really powerful. My sense of things as I've gotten in more of the know with ICBT is I don't see a lot of information about ICBT through IOCDF. I do feel like that's starting to emerge more from ADAA is just my read on it, which ADAA for 
And you have our new fam here would be the Association for Anxiety and Depression Association of America. And then we have IOCDF, the International OCD Foundation. So a lot has been gaining there in helping us understand treatment, understanding resources, providing support. But ICBT has not had as much of a showcase as of yet within IOCDF. Times are changing, though. And wait. Yeah, I think that they are changing. I, I mean, if you're at the conference, you're definitely going to find more like us ICBT people like being on panels and things. And and hopefully the IOCDF will include ICBT within literature soon, too. And no, I mean, that's my that's my hope. Yeah, my hope, too. But in the meantime, I do like to direct folks over to ICBT.online where you can find out a lot more information, resources. You can even find provider lists who might be doing this near me or at least have the capacity to do some telehealth within a region or a province where they're licensed to be able to treat. And so that's also a really helpful resource. But I do think we're going to be learning more and more about some of these different options. And so just like it's important to have both ERP and ICBT as options, when we're looking at trauma, again, with a big T or a little t, Mm -hmm. if we've got that disordered diagnosable level of trauma or just like it's nothing just just you know an experience of trauma no biggie right yeah right tell that to anybody experiencing the trauma no biggie big biggie but you know in terms of just dealing with that trauma it's also important to recognize OCD treatment isn't the catch-all for all of this There may be a need to be able to dive in more to what's happening there with trauma. And that goes for any comorbidity. I mean, OCD doesn't always present on its own. In fact, I would say more often than not, it doesn't present on its own. So if you have co-occurring ADHD, if you have co-occurring trauma, if you have a co-occurring eating disorder, it is important to understand what the evidence-based practices are, or even just having a richer clinical understanding. We don't have to specialize in it. But we need to know that for ICBT, ERP, it's not going to fit the whole bill here. So there are certainly times where we're going to need to do some secondary treatment options or maybe have to do that first to increase some mental flexibility or ability to really tap into what's going on within obsessional thought sequences or intrusive thought sequences, whichever modality feels like it is fitting best for you. But yeah, I mean, I I do think that is super important. So in terms of a takeaway then, as we prepare to wrap up this really great conversation, what would you share with folks around understanding trauma and OCD and the relationship and impact that can have for all of us, the sufferers, the support people. For clinicians, the takeaway needs to be, you need to be watching for both, right? You've got to be on your ball, watching for trauma, impacting OCD and vice versa. Mm -hmm. For families, I want you to know that there are people that are working on this, right? Like the, there's always hope coming and more and more information. And look where we were, you know, just like a year ago or so, people hadn't heard of ICBT. And hopefully there'll be more and more treatments that come online and we'll get better understanding of how these two conditions interact and maybe best treatment options for that certain presentation of PTSD and OCD. 
But I think the biggest thing to know is that there are people out there that can help you and that want to help you. I started this conversation saying that I never thought I'd be an OCD specialist because OCD was such a huge part of my life. It was taking over my life at certain points. And since I'm also a lived experience clinician with PTSD, I can now look back and see why it was hard for me to treat my OCD. My trauma was still very active and accumulating over time. And so treatment options that I tried at that point in time, like I didn't have it paired up. I wasn't getting trauma and OCD treatment at the same time. Maybe ERP would have been more successful for me if I was also getting trauma treatment. So who knows what happened there? But now that we have more knowledge about this and we know that these two things co-occur and are influencing each other, then hopefully we'll be on a path to better treatment options going forward. Yeah, I really love, I love that you're ending with that message of hope because it's true. There is hope. There's a lot of hope. And you've, you described the presentation for a person that feels like they've done it all and nothing has helped. It's so easy to feel hopeless. And and hopeless because you go, oh, my gosh, no, literally, I'm like that one person. They're like, it doesn't work for everybody. And you're like, yeah, it's me in every camp. It's not working. But there's still hope. Definitely is. Yes. And and it's not even to say that at some point, ICBT, ERP, EMDR, medication can't be helpful for you. At the time, it wasn't. But maybe if we do really zoom in on this trauma and we get some better healing around that because it's still so raw it's still so active then our ability to go into a ICBT treatment model or ERP might be so much more and so it doesn't mean that it can't ever work for you but I think yes the more treatment options we have the better chances we have of something working for someone right and we get to continue playing around with that it's no no small ask to ask somebody to trust a treatment model to potentially work for them again when they've already dealt with trauma that has obliterated this experience of what trust is. Mm-hmm. And so even though that is a really hard, very dark place to be, there's still hope. And I think that is really, really beautiful. And I also like how you talked about it accumulating because often I will talk with clients of mine and others about whether we're talking about from a sensory perspective or an OCD perspective, things just snowball over time. They accumulate. They snowball until the point of avalanche, right? But also here in Indiana, we just got like a truckload of snow. (laughs) I can see it out there still. It's been e-learning. It's been all the things this week. It's been fun, delays, all of that. But my son, he made a snowman outside. And if you're not in a region where it snows very often, you may not be aware of this. I know when I was in California, not a lot of my fellow Californians realized this could be. But if he builds a snowman and it gets really warm, all the snow is going to melt. And guess what's going to happen to that snowman? Still there. It's still going to be a chunk of stuff. It's going to be smaller a little bit. A little bit of it's going to melt. But it was so densely packed that it could be warm for a couple days. And there's always that space. It's like the Target parking lot. There's going to be like a little glacier. Big piles. Big pile of like black ice because all of the exhaust. But it's like still hanging there because it was so packed. 
and everything else. It accumulated snow too, but it wasn't that packed. And so do we see the evidence of it? No, it melted. It's gone, right? But I love looking at those because I'm a weird person when it comes to analogies. And I just tend to see a lot of, of possibility in a non-obsessional way, hopefully, of what those things can represent. But I look at that chunk of snow and I go, yeah, that makes sense. We are honoring that that was so dense that this amount of warmth still hasn't made it go away. But you know what? In time, in time, it might take a month, might take a week, might take a day, that shrinks down. It shrinks, it shrinks, it shrinks. And it doesn't mean that it goes away, but rather I've, I like to think of it as it integrates into who you are, right? So that snowman is now in the ground and it's nourishing the grass beneath it and it it goes on. So it's not that our trauma leaves us, but to be more fully integrated from where we were and to recognize, wow, that was quite the mass of ice I had to get through. But I got here and I'm still living and I'm still pursuing whatever I want that life to hold. And so that's pretty special. And if anything, the hope is knowing that we can get to a place where we can integrate that. It might take more time than it took for all the other snowflakes out there. Okay. Yeah, that's a really beautiful thing. And I think two other quick things. One is I really want to put a plug for siblings because siblings really do take in a lot when they are living with someone that they love with OCD. And I just, I feel often that they get a little pushed to the side and not forgotten, but the the squeaky wheel, that whole thing. And so be on the lookout for, for your siblings, like the siblings of people, especially when they're children, just make sure that you're watching out. And I know you guys are, but make sure you have those private conversations with them of just how are they doing? Because often they will look like they're stoically trudging along, but there's a little bit more of an effect to it than maybe what they're letting on. Absolutely. Really, really great point. Because they feel like there's not space and I don't want to take away from what my sibling needs. I care about them. It builds up that sense of hyper responsibility for them to be okay enough for this person to continue to get what they need. And that can be really, really hard. Another aspect of that is, you know, if you're in a sibling relationship where unknowingly you were providing a lot of reassurance to your loved one, the messaging you're going to be given is don't stop that, like don't accommodate it. But then sometimes a sibling will go, well, then how do I love my brother? How do I love my sister? Because it redefines our, our relationship. And it doesn't mean that it can't still be a good relationship, but recognizing It's a radical shift. It's a radical shift for everybody in the family system, in the marriage, in the partnership to go through. But yeah, I mean, often the siblings, sometimes we're talking about it still at an adult level. And certainly that still impacts siblings at an adult level, but they also get to leave and go and do their life. When you're a kid and you're a sibling, that's your environment. You're not just going to leave and be like, okay, well, I'm going to go do my own thing and move out of state, build my community. It's like, no, I'm in the house too, but I'm not sure how to be in the right. house. So you can see how a trauma type of situation can form around having to live with that. And that is not the OCD sufferer's fault. So we need to make sure that we're singing out loud, that that is not something that they have to own. But 
it is important for us to look out for other children that are, you know, trying to do their best in a situation that may be impossible for them to fix, right? Like it is going to be impossible for them to fix. But that overinflated sense of responsibility that we often have in OCD, you could see how that would also maybe affect somebody on a trauma side as a sibling of somebody dealing with the other version, the OCD version. Yeah, great point. And then also along with that is the grief and sadness that can come when healing with OCD happens. Because when you are on the side where I am, where I'm subclinical and I'm really good, I can now look back and I can see the trail of pain, not only for myself, but also for the people who loved me, right? And there's its own sense of it's a hard thing to look back on and realize what OCD has stolen and how small I kept everybody's worlds. So it wasn't just me avoiding the big bad world out there. My kids didn't get to do stuff. Like I'm sure that my parents and my siblings also, they were suffering right along with me as OCD was keeping me in a tight little place. So again, it's not that I own any of that pain for them. That wasn't meant to happen. That wasn't intentional at all. But we need to watch out for those wounds as therapists too. That if somebody's coming to us for treatment and they're suddenly realizing what OCD has stolen from them, that we help them heal those as well. Yeah. Because that shame is not a good thing to hold on to. Amen. And, and, you know, just being able to have those conversations, again, are huge. Because sometimes, not always, but sometimes people are like, well, if there's not a fix to it, what use is there in talking about it? Because I just make everybody sad. And actually, fix is kind of a, a trigger word, probably. How do we fix? We're like active beings. We're not in one fixed state. Anyway, but right. without getting off on that whole rabbit trail, actually, there yeah. is a lot of power in talking about it. Uh, saying somebody grieving and wanting to be able to say, I'm sorry this happened to you guys. And for them to be able to go, I'm so sorry this happened to you and this wasn't your fault. And then for them to say, yeah, and this wasn't your fault. Now we're we. It's not us, them. It's it's a right. we, right? And we all went through this. You can't ultimately make your parents, your siblings accommodate, even though you really want to, if you're experiencing the struggle. They also had some choice in that matter of going, this is the easier battle. It's not that big of a deal if I do this. And it's morphed and snowballed over time. And so everybody has had their own participation in it, but it's no one person's fault. We have the brains we're born with. We have different strengths and different challenges. And so it's not that we have no accountability in life for how we choose to participate or whatnot, but we can have a lot of empathy and grace for ourselves and for others. And I think that is so hard because there is a lot of shame. Like maybe if I was a better parent, my kid wouldn't have struggled with this. Maybe if we hadn't gone to that fair and then they got strep throat and then they got pans or pandas and, you know, maybe if we didn't do our child raising this way, we wouldn't have inadvertently reinforced this idea. And it's like, oh, the weight of the responsibility. It's like, it's... Very akin to OCD just saying, well, if you have a good enough reason why, then I'll let you off the hook. There's never going right. to be a good enough reason. It just is what it is. But when we can realize we are in this together, you aren't alone. I'm not alone. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. And though we played different roles in this, we're also playing different roles now. And we're really getting to show that this doesn't have to be the weight that 
holds us down and keeps us from living our life. And we can even share that with other people. We can inspire other people to know, like, it doesn't have to be that way. And boy, what hope there is in that. And I think that is really powerful. So I really appreciate you saying that because sometimes it's just a matter even of the therapist going, let's have a powwow about this. Yay <laughs> about getting to subclinical, but also, oh my gosh, what your family must have experienced going through that. That is hard. And for them to also say back to you, oh, and what you must have experienced going through that. I just, I would have done anything to change that. And I just feel so sad that I couldn't. And to be able to embrace in that, that love that you guys have for one another that ultimately bridged you through all the hard things and the great things. It's powerful. So I really appreciate you saying that, Bronwyn. And I Super appreciate you coming here today. So Bronwyn is doing all sorts of wonderful trainings. She sees clients. She is a busy woman. <laughs> if people want to learn more about you, where can they go to find out more information? Certainly icbt.online. That is yes. one. Yes. So icbt.online. My website is Bronwyn Schroyer. And then also... I'm part of the OCD Lived Experience Collective. So that is also another website that they could check out. And our trainings are listed there. So we also have a new home-based ICBT training. So people all over the world will be able to access that since we have so many people trying to learn from many, many different time zones. And they don't always line up with our live trainings, but there'll be a recorded home study program for ICBT for clinicians. Okay. So you can check that out. And we certainly have listeners from all over the world. Some are clinicians, some are researchers, a lot of people with lived experience. And so that is really exciting to be able to have access and more hope, more opportunity. So I love that. And we will continue to look at the different research that comes out and hope for more treatment options. But in the meantime, Thank you for everything that you're doing to contribute to that. Bronwyn has been so instrumental, y'all, in helping clinicians build a competency for ICBT. And really, when we look at just even in the last couple months, the amount of awareness and willingness to understand ICBT We've got to just acknowledge Bronwyn and a number of other people as well. She has been a real trailblazer in helping bring this treatment to the U.S. And so thank you for all that you're doing, because I know that I've learned a lot from you just in the small amount of time that we've been acquainted. And I just appreciate the way that you have been able to invest and support the learning in the field. It's making such a huge difference. So thank you for all you're doing. Well, you're welcome. It's it's a a healing aspect of my own to be able to see the ripple effects go out. I don't want anybody suffering with OCD for three decades like I did. So yeah, absolutely, it's a good thing to do. It's freedom. It's freedom. Yeah, it is freedom. And you're sharing that freedom. So thank you. And hey, we'll see you around. We'd love to have you back sometime. There's so many things we could talk about. Good. But at the very least, we will look forward to seeing you around the training spaces. And again, you can check out more information about Bronwyn at ocdfamilypodcast.com. On this blog post, I'm going to have links to icbt.online. I'm going to have links to her website mm -hmm. uh, and a little more information about her as well. But thank you so much and really appreciate your time. Thank you.
Yeah. Thank you for that. Y'all, I'm feeling encouraged because if there's freedom available, what a beautiful and sacred thing. We don't just have hope. There's freedom. When you're in the midst of a storm, whether it's OCD or another mental or physical illness, whether it's a situational stress or anything, hope can be like, can I just feel less of this, this distress, this pain, this suffering? But beyond a reduction in pain, beyond the hope of functioning better is also freedom. And that's something that maybe some in our family here are thinking it's not possible for them. Like, you don't know our life, Nicole. You don't know our pain. And while you're right, I cannot know your exact pain. And I certainly cannot speak certainty to OCD. We all know that's a trap. But I can testify to the freedom I didn't even know was possible in my own life. And you know what? I can point to research outcomes of so many others that have experienced freedom too. Because they're here too. And over here, I see Bronwyn, diagnosed with OCD at 15, didn't find ERP until enrolling in that college study, tried medications, tried everything, all the way to finding ICBT and in a year's time, a year, becoming one of the leading training consultants on bringing this treatment to you to me, to us. I think sometimes people can look at whether it's their therapist or me, I'm running this OCD podcast, right? Meeting with you, fam. Bronwyn, a lead consultant in the U.S., successful practice, doing amazing things for ICBT and drama and just changing the world. Yeah, it's easy for you guys. You've had help. You got that training. You do this now for other people. Of course you get it, but we haven't always had help. Bronwyn has been doing ICBT for a year. She's known OCD since she was 15. We didn't always have help until we did. And then we, as many do, find our own ways to say, hey, this worked for me. It could work for you too. So you see, I'm not alone. Bronwyn's not alone. And you're not alone either, family. So take heart. You know, I will often see new clients coming in in the thick of survivor mode. And I I think a lot of us have been there, right? And I usually tell them, hey, I just want to say there is hope for you, for your loved one, for your family. And that might just sound like lip service right now. And that's okay because I'm grounded here and I'm going to hold on to this hope until you can feel it too. I've got you. We were in this together. And often, y'all, I'll have folks come back and say, I so wanted to believe you. I wanted to be there. I wanted to believe that we could be there, but I couldn't. I couldn't imagine things being different than barely surviving. And now we're free. And this made me think also, I I got a DM this week on social media. So the OCD fam here, we stay connected via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, even though Lord knows what I'm doing on TikTok. But I got a DM asking about more family resources for ICBT. And it was a timely message, y'all, because our very own Bronwyn Schroyer, as you know, great resource for folks, lead trainer here in the U.S., wanting to learn more about ICBT. So, as mentioned previously, I'm going to have a link to her website over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. That'll be under this episode's blog post. Also, ICBT.online is not just for clinicians. 
ICBT.online can be really helpful in learning more about ICBT, lots of really helpful infographics, provider searches, you name it. And so we have bronwynschroyer.com and we have icbt.online. Those are two great resources that families can lean into to learn more. Also, providers, I'm not forgetting about (laughs) y'all, and researchers, please, we need more research on all the things. To that end, aspiring doctoral students, just searching for that perfect dissertation topic. Hey, I got you. We also have OCD Training School. So OCD Training School has two things going for it. It has upcoming live training. So if you're trying to catch a training live, want to be able to interact more, you can find out where some live trainings for ICBT will be coming up through the OCD Training School group. And then there's also this home study program that is going to be available so soon, y'all. I'm actually looking at the website right now, and it says it will be available spring 2023, y'all. It is spring 2023. It is. <laughs> and so that means any day now, we're going to be able to head on over to OCDTrainingSchool.com and sign up for the home study. So if we're like, I can't with these time changes, we started just even reminiscing in the beginning of this episode about the time change. Ugh, right? So if you're like, hey, I'm on the other side of the world, 8 a.m. Eastern, no bueno for me, doesn't work then that's okay because OCD Training School has this home study training program. And if you go over to OCDTrainingSchool.com, you can sign up for the newsletter, which A, hot off the press, updates in terms of when that home study is getting released. But also then you can be in the know about other ICBT trainings that will be available. A lot of them accessible online, some with in-person options. I mean, y'all, y'all. That's good stuff. Also, because if you know, you know, we need to know if there's continuing education units that are included, right? For us professionals that are licensed, yes, absolutely. So I just wanted to let you know, yes, these are, these are credited trainings that are available. You can get continuing education units upon completion and testing of the material. You know the drill. I mean, This is how it goes with CEs, especially if you're participating online, very common. So this is a great opportunity to take trainings for your professional license renewals that can apply directly, directly to doing the work that we do. So check out OCDTrainingSchool.com for more details. I mean, what a great deal we got going on over there. But also, oh my goodness, speaking of great deals. Seriously, y'all, OCD Training School, in honor of the launch of their new website, is offering a discount on their next upcoming live training in April. This is a live training, and it will have our esteemed expert Bronwyn here, as well as Katie Merritt leading the way. And these guys have been trained by Frederick Ardema himself, one of the co-founders of ICBT. They are so incredibly knowledgeable, such a gift to our professional community, and just so skilled and capable. So they're going to be doing a live training in April. ICPG training, it's going to cover all 12 modules with handouts. Like, who doesn't love a good handout? I love a good handout, y'all. Extra time for questions, application of learning, 90-day availability of the training videos. So you can go back and refresh your recollection as needed on different training content. So yeah, that's pretty cool. And you can register for that training over at OCDTrainingSchool.com. And if you enter the coupon code 
OCD School, that's all caps, all together, one word, OCD School, you can get $200 off of that training, which is amazing, y'all. Such a deal, especially with eight CDs available. So it's an amazing opportunity to learn about ICBT. If you've been hearing about it, want to learn more, then you're like, okay, but how do I do it? I want to do it. <laughs> you can learn over there. It's a few Fridays in April. So head on over to ocdfamilypodcast.com. Look at this episode's blog post, episode 35, y'all. And you can see a lovely infographic regarding this upcoming ICBT training, subscribing to their email list, finding out what's going on with OCD training school. Okay. And I'm just going to say, like, I don't get anything from endorsing this other than letting y'all learn more, like an incredible deal. And so I'm happy to pay it forward. And I love a good deal. And this is a really good deal on this training. Okay. So with that, we are technically in the interest of thought segment. And for those who have been around the show for a minute, know that this is my application segment of the show. And so I, I did just do a nice little resource roundup. I know that can be certainly applicable, but I do want to add something on here, a prompt for you, my OCD family community, to explore a bit more this week. Now, Bronwyn and I discussed the difficulty that accompanies not only dealing with disorders and or comorbidities of OCD and trauma, but some of the triggers and grief that can come afterward for the sufferer, for the family members, for loved ones, for the life that was missed, years that can't be relived, or what could have been. OCD takes some major collateral damage in its wake. And again, well, that's no one person's fault. It's still painful. It's hard. And that grief, it's valid. Why did this happen to me? Why us? Why my brain? Why my family? Not honoring that pain can lead to bigger grief and sometimes even resentment. It can lead to a real wrestling mentally, spiritually, emotionally, you name it. And the guilt and shame of the aftermath can be so strong. This isn't fair to me. It wasn't fair to my family. It wasn't fair to my loved ones. And you know what? You're right. You are right. We all suffer with something in life. True. And OCD brings a lot of suffering. Trauma brings a lot of suffering to the sufferer, to the loved ones, to communities. It's not fair. Heck, quarter of a billion folks in the U.S. alone. So I honor that inequity. I honor that. Because if anything is certain, it's that life is not fair. And it's okay to get added support if you or your loved ones, if you're struggling in that aftermath, because when all the noise and, and the dirt OCD kicks up, isn't clouding the landscape, we might really need to grieve that we are where we are. We're here. We wanted or we expected to be there. We wanted more for our kids, for our parents, for our siblings, for our spouses, for our friends. Y'all, we wanted more for ourselves. Honor that. Honor that. Because we, we matter. You matter. And maybe this, this here, maybe this experience here has 
has been your trauma, your worst nightmare. Maybe it's OCD itself. And while we honor all our strengths, yes, warrior, yes, that also includes, it includes y'all, honoring our pain and our grief. So give yourself permission this week to feel what you need to feel. Maybe that's sad. Maybe it's sorry that this impacted so many people. Maybe it's to feel hurt, disappointed, whatever you're feeling. Honor that. Because this toxic positivity and the, the pressure to be okay or not complain, especially, especially because now, now OCD is better, right? It's approved, right? Are you never going to be happy? Y'all, we've been through battle and we know each and every scar that we can see. And we may find more scars buried where we couldn't. So you honor your journey, family. Honor your feelings. Honor the frustrations and the anger or the sadness or the heartbrokenness. Honor this has been hard. And remember that you're not alone. We get it. And we, you, me, us, this family, we honor your pain too. We see you, warrior. Mom. Dad. Sister, brother, best friend, lover, son, daughter, we see you. So let's all create a little space to honor our fight, to honor our pain. And then I'll hope to see you back here at our family table next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah. Says family, like Hoosiers like us, making a fuss. That's right, I went there. And you can too at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.